Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode 168. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is Valerie George. Hey, Perry. On today's episode, we're going to be answering your beauty questions about how natural products are preserved, heat protectants for hair, is thinning hair inevitable, Is it bad to keep nail polish on your toes? And we'll discuss what one personal care product you would buy. Plus, we'll cover a couple of beauty stories in the news. But before we get into that, let's say hello to our fellow co-host. Valerie, how are things going? Hey, Perry, they're going well. Still on the road. If you remember last time, I was in Italy, and then we were in New York together at the Society of Cosmetic Chemists. Um, annual scientific meeting. And now I'm still on the road um, at one of our other manufacturing facilities. But good news is I get to go home this week. So pretty excited about that. Home to the West Coast here in the United States? The warmest coast. (laughs) Well, if you're down south in Los Angeles. Indeed. So as you mentioned, we were in New York City as we had first time I had seen you in a while, but we were attending the 72nd Annual Society of Cosmetic Chemists Science and Technology Meeting. Yeah, for those of you uh, who follow Perry and I on social media, you may have seen us tweeting about it using the hashtag SCC72, which you still may be able to uh, pull up in the search engine on Twitter if you go on there. Yeah, and there we heard talks uh, about some of the latest things in cosmetic science or even beyond cosmetic science. There there was a cool talk about how th- uh, 3D technology might affect skincare products and how your sense of smell and touch and taste can all affect uh, cosmetic products in the future. There were some really cool talks. Yeah, I really enjoyed the talk on synesthesia. I had to practice saying that word a lot, but that was, that was a good one as well about how sounds and the other senses that you mentioned can affect purchasing patterns or feelings towards a product. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, and we got to see all of our cosmetic formulating friends, which is always fun. Yeah, it's a good chance to see everyone. And I did get some questions on social media about, oh, wow, this event looks really cool. How do I get to go? I think it's actually open to the to the public. I, I think there's some non-member pricing. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, you do not have to be a f- chemist or formulator to go. But you'll meet a lot of them that, that are, when you're there. Oh, cool. Yeah. So anyway, to everyone that shows every year in December, Perry and I go. It's a great space to meet people in the industry and hear all about the latest and greatest in cosmetic science research. You know, uh, more than a few people came up to me and said they were happy to hear that the beauty brains were back. Oh, yeah, it was fun. And actually, you know, another funny thing happened to me. I had come back from the show and I was at a a friend's holiday party. My my wife's uh, work friend had a party. And so we're there. And I was talking to this woman who happens, I think she works in the beauty industry, like at Cody or something like that. And she asked what I do. And I said, oh, I, I write on the internet about beauty products. And she says, is it the beauty brains you do? And I go, yeah, yeah, the beauty brains. And she says, oh, I thought I recognized your voice. Uh- <laughs> That's cool. That's the first time that ever happened. So the word is out. The beauty brains are spreading. 
Oh, good. Glad we're back. All right, Valerie, how about we enter and do a couple of beauty science news stories? All right. So, Perry, you found this interesting article that just came out, and it's really about what makes a cosmetic chemist. This story was published in a website called Insider back in November, and they were talking about the luxury skincare brand Sunday Riley and whether the founder is actually a cosmetic chemist. Uh, I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can read the whole story, but basically it comes down to this. Uh, The brand founder, Sunday Riley, regularly refers to herself as a formulator and a cosmetic chemist, but is unclear whether she has the academic credentials or the professional experience that consumers are led to believe by their marketing. There are some specific questions brought up in the article that I think are worth talking about. But before we get to that, I have to wonder, who did this brand offend that would prompt someone to write such an article like this? I mean, it's incredibly detailed, and someone went through a lot of trouble to question the credentials of the founder. I, it, it's a lot of publicity about something that doesn't have a lot to do with the products. Uh, I, I just wonder what happened there. I think it's interesting that uh, the author of the article... I don't know a lot about her, but she did have some people contributing to the reporting of it. Came out around the time that Sunday Riley has been sort of in negative light about their employees, asking their employees to post positive reviews on uh, retail websites, which is a totally different topic. Oh, yeah, I agree, yeah. Yeah, someone definitely has it out for them. Yeah, well, I I think it is interesting for consumers, though, because consumers hear a lot about people saying they're formulators and they're cosmetic chemists, and and we claim to be cosmetic chemists. So I think it's worth talking about what makes someone a cosmetic chemist, and second, how much developing of the product does one person really do? So if you spend enough time on the internet looking at beauty products and reading blogs, you'll hear lots of people claim that they are formulators or cosmetic chemists. But in reality, there is no official definition of what makes someone a cosmetic chemist, a formulator, or a cosmetic scientist. I I liken it to the restaurant industry where you have chefs who go to culinary school and then they become a chef, right? But you also have people who learn how to cook in their kitchen and then they say, hey, I want to start a restaurant. Does that make them a chef or does that make them a cook? And it's, it's sort of the same kind of complication there. That's a great analogy. So nowadays, it's it's so easy to go online to YouTube or to f- find some sort of online course that could teach you to make cosmetics. You know, pretty much anyone can mix chemicals together and follow a recipe and, and make cosmetics. In fact, I have a whole course on cosmetic formulating through my website, chemistcorner.com. But the focus on that is to get people who have backgrounds in science kind of up to speed on how the cosmetic industry works. Because, you know, in college, you don't learn formulating. You learn chemistry. But let's get back to this question. What makes someone a cosmetic chemist? Now, this is just my perspective, but I think it's kind of one that's held pretty consistently through the cosmetic industry. Nearly every cosmetic chemist working in the mainstream cosmetic industry has a college degree in chemistry, chemical engineering, pharmaceutical sciences, or maybe biology. Most people have bachelor's degrees, but more and more people are getting master's degrees, for example, from places like the University of Cincinnati. I personally got a, earned a BS in chemistry from DePaul University, and then I also did all of the coursework required for a master's in biochemistry 
But it turns out I never finished like my final thesis, so I don't actually have an official master's in biochemistry. The truth is, having a, a master's degree once you get into the cosmetic industry, it doesn't really help your career that much. So that's my background. What's your background, Valerie? I have something similar to you. So I earned a Bachelor of Science in Biological Chemistry from Kent State University in Ohio. And I continued on to a master's program at Marshall University in West Virginia. I did not finish my thesis as well. I was a little unhappy with my uh, research program that I was in. So I also do not officially have a master's in biochemistry, but um, I have the all the work put into it, which uh, disappointed my parents a little. But anyway, that's a that's a different story. But I'm a cosmetic chemist with a science degree. So there are a ton of people out there who claim to be formulators or cosmetic chemists. They don't actually have degrees in science or chemistry. Now, there are some online courses who claim that they can give you a diploma in cosmetic science or you get organic formulating or, or something like that. But you know, those things are not really recognized in the industry They're, as anything more than like a self-study. Um, the, the only place you can really get a diploma in cosmetic science from is a place like the University of Cincinnati. They have a, they have a program. But the reality is to work as a cosmetic chemist in the mainstream cosmetic industry, you really need a college degree in science. That's the truth. Anytime I look at hiring, even an entry-level lab technician, uh, the minimum requirement is a four-year degree in a hard science. So you couldn't have a four-year degree in psychology or anything like that. It has to be biology, biochemistry, physics, biochemistry, etc. All right. So that's the education piece. But really, there's another just as important piece, and that's the experience piece. The, the truth is when you get a chemistry degree, they teach you about chemistry, like in, in all fields. They don't specifically train you in something like cosmetic chemistry. In fact, when I started in the field, I, I didn't know much about cosmetic science at all. Everything I learned was on the job training and the research that I did on my own. I, I think that's true with a lot of careers, cosmetic science especially. You have to learn the skill set from somebody else. Sure, there's this, you know, you can teach yourself, but in learning how the science applies to the work that is on the job. Right. And so to be a cosmetic chemist, it, it really does take more than just having a degree in chemistry or even a PhD in some similar subject. To be a cosmetic chemist, you really have to have worked as a cosmetic chemist, as a formulator. And there are really even people who, who can be called cosmetic chemists who haven't done formulating. Formulating is kind of a separate thing altogether. That, that formulators are the people that put the recipes together. But there are cosmetic chemists who do basic research or they do claims testing, and they don't really have a lot of knowledge in creating formulas. And the truth is formulating skincare products is different than formulating hair care products or color cosmetics. Now, I spent most of my time formulating hair care products, and then I did some time doing skincare products, but I haven't spent much time uh, making color cosmetics, for example, beyond lipstick and foundations. Everyone has their own niche in the cosmetics field. You know, we all have this scientific background, but in terms of formulating, everyone develops a skill set for a certain product type, and really that makes them an expert. Now, I'm not saying that people who don't have a science degree can't become formulators. You can certainly, like any cook, understand when I add these two ingredients together, this is the end product I get. But I think where the science degree really becomes critical and valuable is when you have a formula 
and you're trying to understand the challenge that you have. And the only thing that will get you through that challenge is having a science background, a chemistry background, understanding the ingredient interactions and coming up with a solution for it. One of the things I noticed with a lot of self-taught formulators is that they they fall for a lot of the raw material marketing. And so just because a raw material uh, chemical company says that an ingredient will do a certain thing, they will just say, oh, well, this, I'll put it in my formula because it's going to do this thing. But the reality is there's a lot that's said about the marketing of raw materials that isn't exactly truthful. Yeah, they have raw, um, raw material suppliers have marketing departments too, and their job is to say a material can do a whole lot. And, you know, every formula system is unique. It may not always be the case. And that's where having the science background can can really be helpful in before you learn, you know, by trial and error, understanding, okay, well, I don't even have to go to the bench because I know this isn't possible. The other piece of that story is the question of whether uh, this whether one formulator actually comes up with the formula. And I have to say, for the most part in the cosmetic industry, certainly for bigger companies, maybe for small startup companies, this might be not be the case. But for bigger companies, one chemist only works on one portion of the formula. And it's really a team that comes up with the ultimate formulas. Oh, 100%. I am responsible for running an R&D team. And sometimes when I'm out being the face of our department, um, people will come up to me and say, oh, I love this formula that you did. And maybe I did a piece of it, but ultimately is a, a team game. And I just say, hey, you know, we have a bunch of awesome chemists who got to work on it. And that's sort of neat to say, too, is that we're all we all bring something to the table. Right, because there's the marketing people will say what ingredients they want to feature. The production people will help in scaling up. And there's just a lot that goes in. So it's, it's pretty rarely that it's just one person coming up with a formula and they make that product. None of this has anything to do with whether the products from Sunday Riley are, are great products or not. I'm, I'm sure they're perfectly fine. Uh, but uh, I, I just thought it was interesting uh, to let people know that just because someone says that they're a formulator or a cosmetic chemist, that might not necessarily mean the same thing for everybody. All right. Should we answer some questions? Yeah, we'll save our next, our other beauty story for next time. But let's go into the questions. The first question comes from Sharon, and she is wondering about heat protectants for hair. I'm not really sure exactly what she was wondering about them, so I thought I'd explain a little bit about what heat protectants are, why you need them, when you need them, and how they work a little bit. Heat protectants are products that contain ingredients that protect the hair from heat styling. So if you're using tools uh, with heat, like a straightening iron, also called a flat iron, um, a curling iron, you're curling your hair, or a blow dryer, you'll want to protect your hair from the heat. Heat is bad for hair because it causes chemical changes in the hair fiber and also can start to break the hair. It does this by causing water to evaporate from the hair, which is great when you're trying to get your hair dry with a blow dryer, but eventually when all of the excess water goes away, the water in your hair starts to heat up. And what happens when you heat up water? It boils. So your hair will burst open from the water boiling inside of it. Valerie, Alternative. Yeah. Valerie, have you ever seen those uh, electromicrographs from Crota with damaged hair? 
Oh, I actually have a couple uh, myself of our own imagery. Oh, and yeah. Not a not of my hair because I don't I don't thermal style my hair, but um, it is crazy what can happen to the hair. It makes you really sad. Like, what am I doing to my hair? Yeah, there's the 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 cuticle gets chipped up. But one of my favorites was the, the there was like a bubbling effect where it looks like there's these little craters on your hair. It looked up really close. It's, it's very interesting and very scary to think what's happening to your hair. And that's from water boiling in the hair and bursting open through the cuticle. It's it really is real. The other thing that can happen, and I'm sure you've seen this YouTube video of this girl with a curling iron on her hair. She had a little product on it, but she had the iron super hot, and uh, the, her hair melted off. Oh Are yeah, yeah, it cut, this it video. Cut, yeah, it cut right off. That's right. Oh my gosh, we'll have to share a link to that specific YouTube video in the show notes because I, I can't even watch it anymore because I will laugh for two hours straight. But that's the negative effect of heat on the hair when the heat exceeds the amount of protection you have on the hair and the hair literally will melt right off or partially melt and become stretchy. So hopefully it's understood what heat does to the hair and so how can you protect your hair from that? It doesn't seem like there's a lot you can do. Well, there are actually a lot of very effective heat protectants for the hair. And uh, how they generally work is you, it's a, they're usually styling products because you want to leave the product over the surface of the hair. And so you can either spray a heat protectant onto your hair. I don't like to use ones that have water in them because water boils and then heats the hair fiber. And then we're back to the exploding crota pictures of the hair fiber. Same problem. Yeah, exactly. Or usually like a styling cream. And what happens is these products that you're putting on usually contain silicones. Usually they're silicones that are chemically modified to withstand heat. Some proteins can also provide heat protection. They do this by forming a film around the hair fiber. And it's not necessarily a hard film. Sometimes the films can be hard. Styling polymers also work. But essentially, they form this little protective layer over the hair fiber. And they take the brunt of the heat instead of your hair. So they act as a, a heat sink um, from whatever styling element you're using. And they generally have a certain degree of protection that they heat up to. So when I'm developing a styling product, we put it through third-party claim substantiation and we actually measure, okay, what temperature can we protect the hair up to with this either ingredient or the product? And what temperature do these utensils get up to, like a blow dryer or a hot iron? Well, a blow dryer only goes up to, I actually tried to look this up the other day and I I have a, a thermal coupler in the lab where I could actually measure this if I wanted to, um, but they do get up to a few hundred degrees uh, right at the at the heat source. Of course, it's not that hot coming out into the hair. Right. Uh, but curling irons, flat irons, I've seen some heat up to 450 degrees Fahrenheit, 500 degrees Fahrenheit. That is way past the temperature of what hair melts up. You're you're melting your hair at that point. It's crazy. You don't wow. need that much heat. No, you, no. you don't. No, and I actually read a study that you can get more effective long-term straightening. Uh, this study was done with a straightening tool using a lower temperature and more passes on the hair. So instead of doing two passes at 450 degrees and your hair smoking and you're coughing and smelling, you know, your, your hair melting, um, you can do a lower temperature, like maybe 
350 and just do, you know, maybe four or five passes on the hair, there's less damage on the hair and you get some longer term straightening effects over time. Right. So it may take a little more work to get your hair styled or dried, but it's less damaging. Exactly. And over the long run, it's definitely worth it. Maybe we could even send a link to some photos, Perry, but whether no matter what temperature you're using, if you're applying any heat to the hair, you need a product that claims heat protection on it. There you go. So protect your hair, people. All right. There, I got a question here from Dragon Girl Patch. She wonders if the herbivore botanicals products are properly preserved. Mm. Now, I wasn't really familiar with this uh, these products from herbivore botanicals. So I took a look at the website link that uh, Dragon Girl Patch provided. And she specifically linked to uh, a product with rose water moisture cream. Now, in looking at the ingredient list, it appears that they they don't use a standard effective preservative like uh, the parabens, but they instead use a combination of things like sodium anisate and sodium phytate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also likely use a strategy of having a low pH, so say the pH is below 5.0, and then they do their best to probably produce the product in a really clean environment. This type of formulation strategy is known as hurdle technology. And a lot of natural brands are using this hurdle technology in their formulation. We learned about another brand that is doing this, I should say, at the SCC meeting. Uh, Mother Dirt uses this hurdle technology strategy so that they avoid using, you know, these yucky preservatives that are being used by other brands. Right. That's right. The the Mother Dirt brand had a whole presentation on hurdle technology. It was it was it was pretty fascinating. Uh, now, the thing that hurdle technology allows you to do is that you can make the claim that they're paraben free, or even some people go as far and say they're preservative free. Other natural brand and uh, formulas also use organic acids like sorbic acid or benzoic acid, or or maybe some even use phenoxyethanol. Though some people don't consider phenoxyethanol natural, but it's not paraben, so. That, that's just one to use. So there really are a number of alternative preservatives that can be used for natural formulators. Honestly, I have a hard time relating to this claim, though, because when I hear paraben-free or especially preservative-free, I just generally think unsafe and contaminated with dangerous microbes. But clearly, I'm not their intended consumer. But also, Perry, in other geographies, I don't think you can make that claim. So for example, in Europe, if I told our safety assessor I want to write, uh, well, first of all, we're not allowed to say paraben-free because parabens are substantiated to be safe um, in Europe and the United States. But if I wrote preservative-free, they would say, well, you you have to have a preservative. What's preserving the product? And I'm going to get into trouble there. So that's why I have a hard time relating to this claim because it's not really scientifically founded. If the product has water you need a preservative. It's not possible to be preservative-free. Yeah, it is important to note that the EU or Europe and around the world is different than the United States. In the United States, we can, you know, marketers can pretty much say anything they want if if they have some good rationale for for proving what they're saying is is not false, right? Exactly. So, yes, these products are most likely preserved, but you might want to use the products quickly because I wouldn't expect them to last as long as standard beauty products. There's one thing that scares me about alternative preservatives. 
It is worth noting, though, that they, they don't follow the proper labeling procedures on their products, or at least on the uh, on the website here. So it's quite possible that some of their raw materials have preservatives in them that aren't listed on the ingredient list. Some companies who don't have expertise in like label regulations don't realize that they're supposed to list things like uh, known preservatives in their raw materials. That's a tricky one. A lot of brands get caught up on that. And um, in Europe when you follow the European cosmetic directive for labeling the products, those do get caught. And even sometimes I miss them where I'm like, oh, gee, I didn't know I had to list that on the label. And it gets it. You got to pop it on there. You know, while I was on their website, I was struck by a few other claims that they made. Uh, in their marketing story, they, they say specifically, quote, during our creative formulating process, we knew we needed to innovate because we were trying to create something that didn't exist and had never been created before. A lightweight, natural, truly synthetic-free moisturizing cream with a dewy finish that easily blends into skin, leaving it perfectly moisturized. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. But you know what? In looking at the ingredient list, they clearly, in my view, they clearly have not lived up to this claim. They have glycerol stearate citrate, they have cetyryl alcohol, and they have cetyl palmitate. These ingredients do not exist in nature. You know, cetyryl alcohol, there is no cetyryl alcohol plant. (laughs) Now, of course, these materials can come from natural starting points, no doubt. But you can't go and pick a plant and say, oh, here's my acetyl alcohol. It just comes from synthetic chemistry. Of course not. I mean, this definitely can be nature inspired. But tell me where they're getting caprol oil glycerin from. It's There's no plant out there with that. It's all engineered, bio-inspired, whatever you want to say. Again, I'm sure these are perfectly fine formulas, although at $48 for a 1.7 ounce product, <laughs> it's certainly not a bargain. You can find products that work just as well for much less money, I would say, right? Oh, for sure. But at the end of the day, if you like it and it makes your skin look great and you feel good wearing it, go ahead and pay that kind of money. I've spent worse, for sure. I won't divulge (laughs) here what products, but... uh, Oh, no. Absolutely. If a product makes you happy, then that's good. It's... Cosmetics and beauty products are not all about functionality. There's a lot of there's a lot of sizzle that goes along with them, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, you know now I see big companies like P and G and Unilever and L'Oreal. They're all kind of getting into this act. In some cases, they're not making formula changes because they believe the products are actually safer. They're kind of moving towards natural formulas because a that's what their consumer groups believe, and then b they can make a lot more money charging more money for these types of products. I would say these are smart marketers that are making more and more people afraid of perfectly fine working products, and then they get you to pay more, while at the same time, you know, making products that that, that aren't really working a lot better, and they they don't work any better than things that worked uh, that were around decades ago. And I think we'll learn more about this when we delve into next week's news story uh, about herbal essences. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that one. I'm also looking forward to our next question. Oh, this one's good. So I like to get manicures. And if you follow me on Instagram at cosmetic underscore chemist, you'll often see that I put my nails in the photo, like wrapping them around a beaker shaft or holding, um, you know, a flask with them in a very strange position because I I like to show what color of the week I have. 
Um, so the your next... nails, nails always look lovely. Oh, thank you. know, you. I, I got my nails, I, I never got my nails done in any kind of color, but one time after I did the New York Marathon, I went with my sister and, and got our nails redone. Oh, uh, did you get a, a mani-pedi combo? I did, although the, the, the petty part was very difficult for me. I do not like people touching my feet. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't like pedicures then. Um, but Lauren asks, I sometimes leave nail polish on my toes for a long time. Is that bad? I don't know how long uh, you left your nail polish on or if you even got nail polish, Perry. But um, I don't I don't think I took it off. Were you supposed to? <laughs> uh, well, I, we can answer that in the question. So when you get your nails done, uh, oftentimes within the course of a week or two weeks, depending on what polish you get, the nail polish can chip off. But if you are a fan of pedicures and get them, Often you'll find that when you unveil your toes to step back into that tub, your nail polish may often be perfect, maybe a little worn on one or two toenails, but generally it looks pretty good and it can go on like that for months. So if you haven't gotten a pedi in a few months, your toes may very well still look perfect, just a little grown out and you'll see where the new nail is that's not colored. And this is where our fan is asking, is that bad for me? And the short answer is no. So when you have your nails and nail polish on, you may have heard people say before, oh, my nails can't breathe. They're being suffocated by this polish. And the simple answer is that nails actually don't breathe. So you don't have to worry about leaving the polish off because your nails are suffocating. Your nail bed is just made up of layers of dead keratin. And what's to be suffocated there nothing right right people have that impression because they think the nails are porous and while there actually are some holes in between the nail layers and in between the keratin plate they're not porous they're not taking in water the whole point of your nails is to not be porous and to protect what's underneath from getting water or whatever you're soaking in it. Now, that's not to say that they they can't become gross or weird from all the soaking, but if you're soaking your nails in something like acetone or isopropyl alcohol, you know, they can become a little a little soft, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily porous. Sure, and you know, there's two questions that occur to me. First is how come the toenail nail polish stays on so much better than your fingernail nail polish? Oh, I meant to explain that, but overlook that. So oh. that is because your feet are often protected in shoes and right. in socks, and they're generally very moist feeling. Uh, whereas your hands, you're you're moving them around, you're bumping things around all day, you're grabbing things. Whereas your feet just kind of stay put in your shoe, and unless you know you're clacking around on the beach or outside barefoot or wearing sandals in general the polish lasts longer because there's less impact on the hand right all about environmental exposure okay what the second question Mm -hmm. why would anyone give the advice that oh you have to change your nail polish or, or putting the nail polish on your toes that long is bad um i don't know if it's i don't know where this um this this notion came from to her i have heard it because people think, oh, you know, you need to remove it or not put polish on for a while because your nails can't breathe or you're damaging the nail. But the damage actually comes from the nail preparation. 
you know, they have to uh, put solvents on your nails and buff them before they put the polish on so that the polish adheres to the nail better. It's all about the the preparation before the application. And I think people just think the nails need to breathe and, and not have polish on them. Maybe it was a nail technician who, you know, wants people to come back sooner than than later. That's what I think. I think it was the nail polish companies and marketers said, hey, we need to get people to change their nails a bit or we're not going to get, we're not going to make enough, right? Yeah. And the person that I love to follow is another cosmetic chemist uh, who worked in the nail polish industry for a long time, Doug Shoon. Do you know Doug? Yeah. Another long haired California guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's super great. And I, he doesn't know this, but yeah, I, I love his stuff. Yeah. I stalk him, but he has a lot of great information. It's mostly geared towards uh, professionals in the nail industry, but he has a lot of great information to sort of dispel these myths about your nails or why does OPI gel nail polish not last as long on me as the bio seaweed and, and all that kind of stuff. He's fantastic. So uh, I highly recommend to follow him for any future nail queries that one may have. Maybe, maybe we'll get him on the show one of these days. Ooh, that'd be great. He would love to do that. I'm sure of it. All right. How about this question from Curious Pete? And, and this seems like the kind of question a guy would ask. So let's see. Curious Pete asks, if you were only allowed to buy one product for shower, shampoo, shave, what would it be? Ooh, that's a great question, Curious Pete. I already know my answer. What about you, Perry? Well, you know what? Mine would be shampoo. In fact, that's pretty much what I just use now whenever I get in the shower. I mean, I like shampoo that gives a nice creamy lather akin to like uh, the formulas that I worked on was Tresemme. And so I that's I prefer that. Although I also happy using product like VO5 or Suave because I do like the foam and I like the fragrances. How about yourself? Mm, I also would uh, use shampoo and I'll tell you that because it's it's super versatile i mean if i only had to pick one you know it's like okay well what can i get the most bang for my buck out of and for me that would be shampoo because of you know the type of formulation that it is and not just any shampoo i would have it be a sulfated shampoo so yes those evil sulfates that's what i would i would choose of course there are downsides to shampoo shampoo alone like especially something like vo5 it can leave your hair feeling kind of draw or uh, dry or straw-like if you don't use a conditioner too. And it can also leave your skin kind of feeling tight or dry. I mean, it's better than, say, bar soap, but it's certainly not as good as like a gentle body wash. Yeah, of, of course, with any product, you know, I was thinking like, well, what if I just use conditioner? You know, there's always downsides to it, but I feel like there could be one shampoo out there that could be something head-to-toe that works, you know, really cleanses the hair. You know, I don't wash my hair every day with cleansers. Sometimes I just get the hair wet and I, you know, I work my natural oils through. But, you know, it also works as a body wash. You know, an interesting story. When when I was working on the VO5 hair care line, it was back in the, uh, the mid-90s. We wanted to come out with a VO5 body wash. And, you know, what we did when, when we first launched it, we just took the VO5 shampoo and we literally took VO5 formula, we adjusted the detergent levels a little bit, we added a couple of moisturizing ingredients, and then we called it body wash. Mm, yeah, that's very innovative. But, you know, it works. It's the, it's the type of formula it is. It doesn't make it bad. It's just very versatile. Absolutely. You know, uh, you know those, those sulfates, uh, they are really good at cleaning. Yeah. Um, 
I actually use um, sulfated shampoos also to clean my labware. Um, not that any, anything's bad with the sulfates, but cleansers are cleansers and it just makes it super easy for me to wash out my beaker. When I, you know, I run a lot. Oh yeah. So I, so I produce all these wet running clothes. And so one of the things that I'll do is that I'll take my running clothes in the shower with me after I run and I'll wash the running clothes with my shampoo. Mm, and does it work? Yeah, I mean it works fine enough for running clothes. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that for like regular clothes, but for my workout clothes, yeah, it works perfectly fine. Well, if it works, it works. <laughs> Indeed. All right, we got one more question. Last question for this show is another hair question, which I think we both love. And Janice, I'm not sure where she's from, but Janice says my hair is thinning as I age. Is that inevitable? And for a large portion of people, unfortunately, the answer is. Yes. And there's there's a lot of research that has been done in this area, specifically looking at different population ages and then counting hairs. Yeah. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, every individual is unique. We come from unique backgrounds. There's not only genetic potential, but there's this concept called epigenetics. Um, I'm not, have you ever covered epigenetics on one of your episodes? We have not. That would make a good topic for a future show. Yeah, so I won't get a whole lot into it here, but essentially it's, you know, nature and nurture, your your genetic predisposition to hair loss, and then there's the environmental factors as well. And there was actually a study published that Perry found in the British Journal of Dermatology back in 2001, where they looked at hair density, hair diameter, and the prevalence of female pattern hair loss. And the researchers looked at a general population and also a group of women who specifically complained about hair loss. And what they found was for the general population, older people had lower density of hairs, so there were less hairs on the head. So over a certain space, less hairs. To give you a sense of what that means when we're talking about older people, younger people, at the age of 35, people had an average of 293 hairs per centimeter squared. While at the age of 70, people had an average of 211 hairs per centimeter squared. So that's a 27% hair thinning reduction just from density alone. But then you also have the problem of the hair fibers thinning. So whereas the study, the, the previous part of the study we just talked about is how many hairs in a certain portion of skin on the head, a latter part of the study looked at how big is the actual hair fiber on the hair? And they found that at age 35, they were about 83 micrometers, but at age of 70, it was only 68 micrometers. So not only is there less hair, but it's thinner, which makes me really sad to be old. Thinner hair, and that's going to that's gonna make it look like you have less hair. Exactly. So, Perry, in your experience, um, I think there's only really one thing that's allowed on humans to work, right? At least in the United States. Yeah, for for topically, um, as treatments go, minoxidil is really the only thing that's officially allowed for uh, making hair grow in humans. And I was looking at it about that works at about sixty percent of people who use it. Sixty five percent of people who use it will see some effect. So it's not like a, a silver bullet for everybody. Mm-mm. But really, from the FDA standpoint and approved drugs, medoxidil is the only topical treatment. There's there's a pill that you can take, but medoxidil is the only topical treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I was reading some research, though, uh, and there are some mice studies, because people ask me about this on my formulation uh, website. There were some mice studies that showed that peppermint oil and lavender oil might work as well as minoxidil. But the thing is, these were done on mice, right? So what they did is they took these mice and they shaved them off, and then they put on peppermint oil or lavender oil and then minoxidil and then some other oils. And they showed that, yeah, peppermint oil and lavender oil actually had the same results as minoxidil. But that's just because it worked in mice doesn't mean it's going to work in people. And the fact that peppermint oil isn't everywhere in, in these products sort of suggests to you that it's probably not translating to humans as well. And not only that, but think of, you know, and maybe this study went into or didn't go into it, but surely there are some adverse reactions to using peppermint oil and lavender um, on the skin or on the hair follicle, you know, that that's only looking at one potential benefit, but we have to consider before people go squirting peppermint oil and lavender right on their scalps that there are adverse effects to using those as well. So not everything has a silver lining. Right. A- absolutely. And with something like hair loss, like small studies, like the one I just talked about, that to me does not provide the substantial amount of proof that you really would need, like in humans, that would make me recommend using these ingredients in your hair, hoping to get, hoping to fight hair loss. The thing is, cosmetic marketers are perfectly happy to sell you hair treatments with pepper, peppermint oil and lavender oil just because like a small study on mice says, hey, these mice look like they grew hair. Yeah, everyone has a marketer behind them. This is such a hard problem, you know, just remain skeptical. Well, Valerie, that looks like that we've come to the end of our time. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you get a chance, can you go over to iTunes and leave us a review? Your review on iTunes will help other people find the show, and that's going to ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Speaking of beauty questions, if you want to ask a question, click the link in the show notes or record one on your phone and send it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. We prefer audio questions because it sounds much better on the podcast instead of having to listen to my nasally voice or... Oh, no, no, my (laughs) nasally voice. (laughs) My nasally voice. (laughs) I never liked my voice until I went to that party and that that girl said, hey, I recognize your voice. (laughs) Also, you can follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we also have a Facebook page. That's the show, everyone. Thanks again for listening. Now, go make a difference. See you next week. Kittens!